scripture lesson this morning is Genesis chapter 33, beginning in verse 1 and reading the entirety of the chapter. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel, and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you've accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nurses, flocks, and herds are a care to me. They are driven hard, for one day all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and sit here. So Esau said, Let me lead with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to sit here. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohei Israel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word that you've given to us, that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you continue to speak to us by your word, enabling us by your spirit to understand. And so may we understand this story today and continue to consider the life of Jacob, to consider Jacob's faith and to be imitators of him. We ask for this help and for your blessing upon our time now as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Three times in the Gospels, once in Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 20, all in the context of Jesus speaking to the Sadducees who denied the resurrection, Jesus quotes Exodus 3, 6, where Yahweh says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then adds, and then Jesus 
says he is not the God, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. This phrasing is then used two times in Acts, in chapter 3, where Peter is teaching in Solomon's portico, and then in chapter 7 in Stephen's sermon. And the theology and implications of this we won't fully pursue today, but consider how Yahweh, how the Lord is willing to identify himself in this way to his people and with his people, to those to whom he made promises, to those to whom he entered into covenant. Interestingly enough, in 1 Chronicles 29, David addresses his prayer, O Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our Father. Keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Notice the, the name change from David to Israel that David employs. Similarly, in 2 Chronicles 30, under the reforms uh, that Hezekiah brought about, particularly in regard to worship, we read this. So couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes, as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Syria. Hundreds of years later, the appeal is made to the same Yahweh, to the same Lord. And maybe that seems like stating the obvious, because it's the same God. That's certainly true. But it's hardly insignificant. These stories that we read in the Old Testament aren't simply history, but are also demonstrations of faith, just as Hebrews 11 indicates as well as the scripture that teaches about Christ, even as Jesus elucidates in Luke point four. And so when we read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're reading about our fathers in the faith, every bit as much as the Old Testament believers that followed them, and, and therefore there's instruction for our faith in these ancient accounts. So what have we established and considered over the past couple of weeks? Righteous Jacob has been wrestling with Esau from the time that they were in their mother's mother Rebecca's womb. But not only has Jacob wrestled with Esau, but also with his father Isaac, to a degree. And then he had to wrestle with Uncle Laban, the tyrant, for 20 years. And whereas Abraham's was a largely waiting faith, Jacob's was a wrestling faith. And as we noted last week in the well-known text of Jacob wrestling with God, the text clearly says, says that Jacob wrestled with a man. Why? Because we're to recognize that the wrestling matches with Esau, Isaac, and Laban were ultimately from God. And Jacob's wrestling with them was his training ground, the preparation for his wrestling match with the angel at Peniel. The Lord was making Jacob stronger, not in an adversarial fashion, but endeavoring to help Jacob mature and grow to become wise become wiser, more capable, and discerning. So the Lord deals with us in a similar fashion, as sons and daughters, wanting us to mature, even as we recognize the wrestling matches we encounter, are ultimately from and with our Heavenly Father. And that's what's going on in chapter 32. And now that the day has gone here in chapter 33, the limping Jacob looks up to see Esau and his 400 men approaching, and Jacob is ready. He's more than ready to face his brother. Clearly, he can't run. So he goes and meets him head on. And once again, we need to strip away some of our common misconceptions about Jacob and this text and view it through the lens of Jacob, the mature man acting in a righteous and faithful manner. 
You may recall the structure for this text uh, for chapters 20, for chapters 32 and 33. It follows a pattern of God established his camp at the beginning of chapter 32, and then Jacob establishes his camp at the end of chapter 33. Jacob prepares to wrestle with Esau in 32, and then Jacob wrestles Esau here in 33. But then at the center is Jacob's wrestling with God. So there are these corresponding sections, and what has led up to this meeting with Esau. The structure for chapter 33 itself is a bit difficult to discern, but it does appear that verse 10 is at the center point. And one of the key themes or words used is favor, which gets obscured a little bit in the English translations. In verse 5, where the ESV has Jacob saying, God has graciously given your servant, it can read, with whom God has favored your servant. In verses 8, 10, and 15, the word favor is used. And then similarly to verse 5, Jacob says in verse 11, For God has shown me favor. The language of favor was first spoken by Jacob in chapter 32, verse 6, when he instructed his messengers to tell Esau that he was seeking favor in his sight. A further interest is that this word, which has the idea of acceptance, appears frequently in this chapter and is used elsewhere to refer to the divine acceptance of sacrifices. One example is Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, and the instructions related to the ascension offering. He shall lay his hand on the head of the ascension offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. If we jump back to Genesis 32 and the series of gifts of animals that Jacob sent ahead of him to Esau, we read that Jacob thought, I may appease his face with the tribute that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. So there's, there's all of this, this loaded language that underlies chapters 32 and 33. And what's something that we need to remember about what Jacob is physically doing? Well, he's re-entering the promised land. He's progressively drawing closer and closer to the sanctuary, you might say. Even symbolically approaching the Holy of Holies in the sanctuary land. And what we're given here is a foreshadowing of how Israel will approach God in worship particularly on the Day of Coverings, the Day of Atonement. Now to some further details of the story. Jacob lifted up his eyes from their expression in Genesis. And behold, Esau is coming with his 400 men. What does Jacob do? Well, he divides his sons and their mothers in, in two, three groups, uh, according to the, the maid servants, Leah and Rachel, and Commentators want to say that Jacob's doing this because of Esau's attacks. Maybe Rachel and Joseph will have a chance to escape. Possibly, but I doubt it. Uh, the likelihood of Rachel escaping from an army seems pretty slim. There's something more going on here. But notice that Jacob goes out ahead of them. He leads the way. He's acting like a shepherd leading his flock. And he puts himself between his family and the potential enemy. Recall Adam's failure to do that in the garden. Jacob doesn't fail at this point. Neither did Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, even as we read in John 18, and how, how Jesus comes forward, placing himself between the band of soldiers and his disciples. In our text, it also tells us that Jacob bowed down seven times as he drew near to Esau. So he's drawing near and bowing down. What's pictured in that? Well, the bowing down is a sign of respect, and Jacob is recognizing that Esau is basically the king of Edom, and he's acting accordingly. As one pastor notes, these actions are also significant 
in the ritual of the day of coverings. And the high priest, who could only enter this place once a year on the tenth day of the seventh month by command of God, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and sprinkled the blood seven times on each side of the cover of the ark. Sometimes called the mercy seat, but literally the cover. This seems to be connected with Jacob's earlier offerings. Is in the least based upon it. Now Jacob is entering the holiest place and bound these seven times. He's offering himself up before Esau on behalf of his household. Jacob is drawing near to Esau. This is a sacrificial concept. The purpose of sacrifice was to draw near to God. Jacob is bowing these seven times and drawing near to Esau. He is a good shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. Verse 4. And, and think about verse 4 and what, what's being described here. Just picture this in your mind. In contrast, these brothers here. Jacob is approaching Esau. He lifts up a few steps and then bows to the ground. <coughs> lifts a few steps and then bows to the ground. But Esau runs. Esau has the appearance of being the stronger and the greater of the two. But we know better, don't we? We know what Jacob has gone through the night before. We know that his limping is really a sign of victory. But then Esau's actions are actually quite surprising, aren't they? You know, if we weren't so familiar with the story, this really would be unexpected. Who could have guessed that Esau would act this way? And yet it's clearly an answer to Jacob's prayer back in chapter 32, verses 9 to 12. I'm reminded about the surprise of the answer of an occasion where a couple was having to deal with a difficult and unreasonable person over a particular legal matter. And after a couple of trips to court, things seemed to be getting nowhere fast. And the prospect of a drawn-out legal fight appeared to be very real. Then someone out of the blue, their adversary called him and said he wanted to come to an agreement and not have to go to court anymore. And, oddly enough, his change of heart was inspired by a sermon he had heard on Matthew 18 19 on being in agreement. And the sermon was actually the application that was taken out of context. But that's what the Holy Spirit used. Though the man's spiritual state was questionable, but what a surprise. What an answer to prayer. Now, to what level Esau has had a change of heart, we, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Uh, one scholar that I have a great deal of respect for makes the case that Esau is evidencing the of conversion at this point, and that could be, but Esau makes no mention of Yahweh, so it's really hard to know for sure. But this is a truly moving scene, as Esau runs to Jacob, embraces him, falls upon his neck, kisses him, and they wept. Brothers are weeping together at this reunion. There may even be an echo back to chapter 29 in Jacob's meeting with Rachel, where he kissed her and wept for joy for the Lord's marvelously providing for him. Another moment of emotion. Well, now it's Esau's turn to lift up his eyes, and there he sees Jacob's wives and children asking, Who are these with you? Jacob replies, The children with whom God has favored your servant. Perhaps you already noticed this, but Jacob takes and maintains a humble position throughout. He bows down. He refers to Esau as my Lord and to himself as your servant. Jacob is adopting a position of humility. Then in the presentation of the wives and children, they too are treating Esau like a king. The concubines and the children born to them go first, then Leah and her children. Finally, Joseph and Rachel are presented before Esau. 
And the language used seems to reflect that Jacob directly escorted these last two. Perhaps he's even carrying the young Joseph in his arms. But why are Rachel and Joseph presented last? Well, because Rachel's the queen. When introducing royalty to other royalty, you don't start with the queen, you end with the queen. You know, think of it this way. When you're at a wedding reception, the bride and groom aren't introduced first. They're introduced last, after the wedding party. Same idea here. But the most important come last. And had we come to this point by way of chapters 29 to 31, we would, um, we would understand the priority of Rachel being established and her shepherdess's position in relation to Jacob the shepherd. Jacob the king and Rachel the queen. In verse 8, Esau asks what Jacob meant by all the company that he met, the five sets of animals and servants that had been sent. And Jacob plainly responds to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Esau states he's plenty wealthy and doesn't need it, but Jacob insists, and his insistence is related to the fact that the acceptance of the gift of the tribute, which is the gift offered to a king, means that Esau has accepted Jacob. Those are the terms that Jacob sets forth. And then he makes this profoundly theological statement. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. Again, Jacob understands that all of his wrestling with Esau have really been wrestling with God. That Esau was the instrument of God's wrestling with him to ensure him. God has accepted Jacob upon his return to the promised land. So he's asking for Esau. Then in verse 11, note carefully what Jacob says. Please accept my blessing that has brought you because God has dealt favorably with me and because I have enough. Jacob readily confesses that all he has is from God's gracious hand. Further testimony to the fulfillment of his promises to Jacob. But notice that Jacob says, please accept my blessing. Now, plenty of scholars want to say that Jacob only uses the word for blessing this one time, so as not to raise Esau's ire like what happened 20 years ago when Jacob tricked Isaac for the blessing that Isaac was attempting to give to Esau. Maybe Jacob's intentionally cautious with his language there. But the fact that Jacob says, please accept my blessing, has some significant implications. First, we need to recognize that Jacob was established as a priest back at Bethel in chapter 28. He's equipped Isaac in that role and function. Second, Isaac sinfully was going to give Esau 100% of the blessing back in chapter 27, but all of it ended up going to Jacob. Having two sons, two-thirds should have gone to the first son, and then one-third to the second son. But we have to remember what Yahweh declared to Rebekah back in chapter 25, when Jacob and Esau were wrestling in her womb, and that Jacob was the true firstborn according to God's word, and Isaac, Isaac was going to act in rebellion against that. But what's going on here, in some measure, is Jacob conferring the one-third blessing that Esau had been cheated out of by Isaac. Now, whether it amounts to an actual one-third really isn't the point. But where Isaac failed in his duties, Jacob faithfully fulfills them. Jacob is blessing the nations in the nation of Edom that is his brother Esau. And it could very well be that Esau's acceptance of the blessing indicates that he doesn't harbor any ill will to Jacob and has come to terms with what God has brought about. 
and that Jacob was elevated for God's purposes in the world. He's willing to submit to the blessing of God through Jacob and no longer grasp after what doesn't belong to him. Well, in verses 12 to 17, we find exchanges between Esau and Jacob about Esau's offer for Jacob to come and live in Seir with him to journey together, and then Esau's offer of an escort. Jacob refuses. Uh, he refuses all of these, and it could be that Jacob's still wary of Esau, but he clearly doesn't want to accept anything from Esau, and there's, there's a clear separation of seeds here. Interestingly enough, there may be some echoes back to Abraham, to Abram in Genesis 14, when he goes to rescue Lot. He divided his forces against the enemy by night, and then he wouldn't accept anything from the king of Sodom. Jacob needs to remain distinct from Esau. Jacob has a different calling, and it's likely that Jacob eventually went and visited Esau in Seir, but for now, his goal is to return to Canaan, and he doesn't want to be sidetracked from that. Esau picks up on Jacob's polite and gracious declamations and is content to leave Jacob uh, as he so desires and returns that day on his way to see him. Then in verse 17, we're told that Jacob journeyed to Sukkot, which means tent or tent for booze, and built himself a house and made booze for his livestock. And so the name of the place is Booze. Now we're familiar with the booze that the nation of Israel built in the wilderness and the feast of booze they celebrated in commemoration. But the foundations for that are here in Jacob's experience. Furthermore, the Feast of Booths immediately followed the, the Day of Covering, the Day of Atonement, the seventh month of Israel's year. As one scholar notes, the Feast of Sukkot has many themes that run through it, but it carries the meaning of dwelling with God in his cloud, because Sukkot also means cloud. Yet, if we were studying straight through Genesis, we'd observe that the story of Jacob and his sons is parallel to the story of Moses and the nation of Israel. In Exodus 12, 38, it says Israel moved from Ramses to Sukkot. When they came out of Egypt, they built some booths to dwell in. This is where it says that God led them in a pillar and in a, cl and a cloud. God was in the cloud, and they were in their cloud. God was in the cloud in the tabernacle. Once a year, the Israelites were to camp around that in their own booths. These are not tents made of animals, but rather tree branches. The house is built of tree branches. It is a tree house, which is off the ground. A tree looks like a cloud. The leafy canopy of a tree is very much like a cloud. And every Israelite in his own cloud because they were glorified with the glory cloud of God. When they came out of Egypt, they had the Feast of Unleavened Bread at Sukkot, and the Feast of Sukkot was set up six months later to memorialize that. Again, the, the foundations for the nation of Israel's experience is seen here in Jacob Israel's experience. Then in verse 18, the ESV and other translations say that Jacob came safely or peacefully to the city of Shechem, but another reading could be that he came to Salem, a city of Shechem, which is the land of Canaan. The King James Version reads this way. And I'm inclined to follow this second older reading. Why? Well, because Jacob is going back over the ground of Abraham. Again, go back to Genesis 14. When Abraham met the king of Salem, met Melchizedek. He is, as Hebrews identifies him, king of peace. But he was also actually the king of a place called Salem. 
So it's certainly possible that the writer wants us to make this connection between Jacob and Abraham, which fits with the righteous character of Jacob as the one who loved the covenant as did his grandfather. And with what did Melchizedek supply Abraham? Bread and wine. He celebrated a victory feast at the city called Peace. Similarly, Jacob has been victorious in his battles and has now come to The mention of Shechem also reminds us of Abraham back in chapter 12 and Yahweh's meeting Abraham by the terebinth tree there. And what did Abraham do after that meeting? He built an altar. He established worship. Now Jacob, as the head of the priestly people, sets up camp before the city. And then what's he do next? He buys the piece of land from the son of Kenmore, Shechem's father. Another echo of Abraham. This time, back in chapter 23, buying the field from Ephron the Hittite in order to bury Sarah in the cave. And then Jacob sets up an altar, a place for public worship, and names it God, the God of Israel. So like Grandpa Abraham, Jacob exercises his faith and buys some land and builds and, and there's a principle here that we need to remember. Taking dominion always begins and ends in worship, with worship. And Jacob is establishing worship of the true living God. And will begin evangelistic efforts in the community, seeking to win Canaanites to Yahweh, a point which factors significantly in the next chapter. Just as Abraham started with worship, so did Jacob. Interestingly enough, thousands of years later, so did the Reformers. John Calvin, in his little book, The Necessity of Reforming the Church, states, It is to be inquired, then, by what things chiefly the Christian religion has a standing existence amongst us and maintains its truth. It will be found that the following two not only occupy the principal place, but comprehend under them all the other parts and consequently the whole substance of Christianity. A knowledge, first, of the mode in which God is duly worshipped, and secondly, of the source from which salvation is to be obtained. And when these are kept out of view, though we may glory in the name of Christians, our profession is empty and vain. So Calvin's first priority was the reformation of worship, and many of the other reformers started there as well. So let us, taking Calvin's exhortation to heart and remembering the example of Jacob, not neglect or negate the primacy and importance of worship. Let's not become weary of well-doing when it comes to worship, the corporate worship, the gathering of God's people. It's the first and last thing. And as we consider the landscape of our present society, then let us all be all the more resolved of its importance and that a reformation of society begins first with a reformation of the church and particularly with a reformation to biblical worship. And if you've been a, a part of this congregation for any length of time, you already know this. And you might think we're unnecessarily beating the drum on this point again and again and again. Maybe we are. But only for the fact that it's so vitally important. 